0: So you're here. Uh, Let me lead us in prayer and we'll start looking at God's word from John chapter 20 today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together again. And we pray that as we reflect upon your word, that as you promised, we might hear you speak. And that your truth, Father, would set us free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know what you are like at buying presents, but I really struggle. Buying presents, I guess, is just not one of my love languages. But nevertheless, it's one of the things in life that you need to do, and I find buying presents very difficult, even when I'm given very clear hints. In fact, being honest, even when I'm told explicitly what to buy, I still struggle. Let me tell you a story. It was my wife's birthday a few years ago, and she said to me very kindly, I would like a Jamiroquois CD. Thank you very much. I go, okay, so I know what to do. So I took myself off to the CD place, and I'm standing there, and I thought, well, actually, I have no idea who or what Jamiroquois is. But that's all right. It could, shouldn't be too hard to find, because you don't want to appear ignorant and stupid and actually ask somebody for help. So anyway, I start looking. I look under bands. Can't find Jamiroquois there. Uh, male artists. I can't find it there because actually I don't know how to spell Jamiroquois. Like, I don't know what letters really I would use to spell such a name. Oh, I find nothing there that seems to be right. Oh, I look under alternative because my wife has uh, quite sophisticated taste in music and can't find anything. I'm at a loss. I've spent, you know, 15 minutes wandering around the shop pretending like I know what I'm doing and actually I don't know. Finally, I go up to one of the kind sort of people working in the shop there. It could have been one of you. Uh, if it is, I'm sure you were very helpful. Um Al- I stood there and I just said, "Ah, oh, pretending like I know what I'm doing, oh, I'm looking for Jamiroquois' latest CD. And the guy sort of looks at me and says, you mean that big pile of them behind you there, the number seven on our top ten albums, that, that big pile of them right there? Yeah, that's the one. Thanks very much. So I'll take that one. Thank you. <laughs> and I go, my problem was, my problem was I was looking in the wrong place because I actually didn't know what I was looking for you don't know what you're really looking for if you don't understand what it is that you're looking for you're going to start looking in the wrong place just like I did so let me ask you a question where would you look to find Jesus where would you look to find Jesus historians agree that he was born and died in Palestine 2000 years ago so where would you go to find him If you say, well, I'd start with the old graves, the old tombs in Palestine or Israel. Let me say, if that was your starting place, you would have about as much luck finding Jesus there in the tombs of Israel as I did, looking for Jamiroquois under country and western. You're not going to find Jamiroquois under country and western. You're not going to find Jesus in the tombs of Israel. You won't find him there, not because his body's been moved. You won't even find his bones anywhere. And that's not because they've just turned to dust. You could take out your little pocket DNA analyzer and analyze every speck of dust on the face of the planet. You will not find Jesus' decomposed remains anywhere on the face of the planet. Though he died 2,000 years ago, you won't find him among the dead because he's not dead anymore. We come today to john chapter 20, which is the climax of john 's eyewitness account of jesus' life and ministry the accounts of jesus' res- resurrection which are captured here in john chapters twenty and twenty one here is the glorious fruit of jesus' ministry to this point, including his death. This is the climax of jesus' ministry they 're the fruit of it, and their passages Full of excitement and hope. And so I trust that as we look at them today, God too will grip you with the wonder of his truth. So two main headings for us today, which you can see up there on the outline in yellow on the board. Jesus' resurrection, it happened. And Jesus' resurrection, it matters. So first of all, Jesus' resurrection, it happened. Let's start with the empty tomb. In John's account here in chapter 20, which I hope you've got open in front of you from John's Gospel... John jumps forward from the Friday when Jesus died in chapter 19 through to chapter 20 and the Sunday. And on the Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and she realises that Jesus' body has disappeared. Now she suspects grave robbers, which was not uncommon in the first century because the spices and the material that they used, the materials they used to wrap a body in burial, Those were quite valuable. So yes, people would steal dead bodies in order to gather those materials. So Mary thinks that the body's been stolen. She runs to tell Peter and another disciple who's not named in the account, but in all likelihood is John himself. And they hear Mary's report that the body's missing and they set off for the tomb. So if you've got John's gospel there, chapter 20, let's pick up the story at verse 4. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. What does John actually see? He sees these empty grave clothes, these linen wrappings, which have been wrapped around with the spices around Jesus' body. What was his reaction? Verse 8, he saw and believed. So what exactly did he believe at that point when he saw these grave clothes? Is that the point he believed that Jesus' body was missing? Well, it could be, but I think that's a bit too obvious and trite. The clue, I think, is given in the next verse, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That is, Jesus' followers had not yet cottoned on to the fact that the Old Testament prophecies told them that the Christ Jesus would come back to life after three days. They would not yet got that fact in their head from understanding the Old Testament Scriptures. But when John sees the empty grave clothes, he gets it. He thinks, Jesus is alive. He sees the grave clothes and he believes that Jesus is back from the dead. Now, people may well object, oh, how can we be sure about this? Or maybe, maybe the tomb wasn't really empty. Maybe actually Jesus was buried in a tomb with quite a few other bodies And someone came and legitimately took away one of the bodies and so they looked in and they thought it was Jesus' body that was missing it was actually someone else's body that was missing. Or maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Or maybe, as some have suggested, Jesus actually didn't die at all but he sort of swooned on the cross and then they put him in the tomb and he sort of revived and walked out of there. Maybe one of those are the actual explanation of what happened, not that Jesus was suddenly alive back from the dead. But actually, none of those objections work if you take John's eyewitness account seriously. If you take it seriously. For instance, back in chapter 19, if you've got it there, you can see it in verses 33 to 35, John specifically affirms that Jesus truly died. After having narrated Jesus' death on the cross, he he says, you know, it's the eyewitnesses who speak here. I saw these things and my word is trustworthy. He affirms Jesus really did die. He also documents that Jesus was laid in a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid before. He says that in verse 41 of uh, chapter 19. So there can't have been some mix-up of bodies. There was only one body in the tomb. And he records that at least two different people placed the body there. He says that in verses 38 to 39. So there can't have been some sort of tomb confusion where they sort of didn't know where they were going. There are at least two independent people who both knew the right tomb. So none of those objections stand up. There's no doubt here Jesus' body was gone. His grave clothes were there and that prompted John at least to believe that he was alive. Now you may not know the name of Marcus Borg but Marcus Borg is an internationally renowned Jesus scholar. He's a professional academic, spends his life thinking and talking about Jesus. Jesus. Now you might be a bit shocked by this, but he says that whether or not that tomb was empty on that first Easter morning, it doesn't matter, he says. He says it makes no difference to Christian faith today whether or not that tomb was empty. Let me read to you a quote from him. He says this, I see the empty tomb, says Marcus Borg, I see the empty tomb and whatever happened to the corpse of Jesus to be ultimately irrelevant to the truth of Easter. For me, he says, it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty. Whether Easter involves something remarkable happening to the physical body of Jesus is irrelevant. My argument is not that we know the tomb was not empty or or that nothing happened to his body, but simply that it does not matter. The truth of Easter, as I see it, he says, is not at stake in this issue. And he goes on. As a Christian, I am very comfortable not knowing whether or not the tomb was empty. Indeed, the discovery of Jesus' skeletal remains would not be a problem. It doesn't matter. He says, if you can go to a tomb in Israel or Palestine and find me the bones of Jesus, it doesn't matter one jot to the truth of the Christian faith. It's completely irrelevant. Because for Marcus Borg, the reality behind Easter was that Jesus' followers experienced Jesus as an ongoing living reality after his death. They experienced something of Jesus' ongoing presence and that's what matters. Whether Jesus was actually physically alive or not, he says is irrelevant because they experienced him as being alive. So he goes on to say this. He says, my, ex- my position is that the experiences of the risen Christ as a continuing presence generated this claim that Jesus lives and is Lord. And that the statement, God raised Jesus from the dead, and the story of the empty tomb may well have been generated by these experiences. Now, the problem with Marcus Borg's view here is that the accounts in the New Testament and John's account that we're looking at today do not present themselves as allegory as some sort of story made up to explain this experience of Jesus being alive John actually presents the story of the empty tomb as a fact not just any fact a personally eyewitnessed fact by John himself he was there and he saw it with his own eyes Now, Marcus Borg says the empty tomb story might have been made up in response to some belief about Jesus. I believe that Jesus is alive, so I make up this story about the empty tomb. But John actually puts it the exact opposite way. He says it was the fact of the empty tomb seeing those empty grave clothes that prompted John to believe. It starts with the fact and leads to belief that Jesus is alive today and friends it's this fact that Jesus is alive not merely in our hearts but in a true physical person it's that fact that sets the Christian faith apart from other religions we worship a living person not a made up person not a figment of our imaginations or wishful thinking we worship a living person as living as you or I. Our allegiance isn't to some abstract ideal such as love or justice or fairness. Our allegiance isn't to a moral code, you know, the Ten Commandments or living a good life. Our allegiance isn't even to some pathway of salvation or a process of enlightenment. Our allegiance isn't to a dead prophet or a wise person whose teachings we seek to embody. Our allegiance is to a living person, A risen King, God's own Son Jesus, the eternal divine word, become flesh and walked amongst us, who is now, we believe, risen and reigning, ruling from God's right hand. That's who our allegiance is to, and He wants your allegiance too. Well, friends, that's the empty tomb. Second point here the appearances the appearances. The evidence that Jesus is alive rests not only on the fact that the tomb was empty but also on the appearances of Jesus to his disciples and John here in these two chapters chapter 20 and chapter 21 recounts four appearances of Jesus to his disciples now we know from the rest of the New Testament that there were more appearances than that but John's been selective he's picked out just four of them to recount for us here Have a look at the first one. It's there when Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. After John and Peter see the empty tomb and head back home, Mary's standing there weeping and she's looking for Jesus' body, still thinking it's been taken. But like me in the CD shop, Mary is looking in the wrong place because she doesn't know really what she's looking for. She's looking for this Jesus amongst the dead instead of amongst the living let's have a look there in uh, chapter 20 verses 15 and 16 Jesus says to Mary woman why are you weeping who are you looking for supposing him to be the gardener she said to him sir if you've carried him away tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away and Jesus said to her Mary she turned and said to him in Hebrew which means teacher and down to verse 18 Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then John records later on the same day, Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples. This is the second appearance. So we read on from verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they would seen the Lord. The reaction of the disciples here reminds us that that's what Jesus himself had said would be their reaction when they saw him again risen from the dead. Just a few days previously, on the night before he died, Jesus is there with his disciples and he said, recorded for us in John 16 verse 22, he said, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And here they are, just a few days later, seeing him back again, rejoicing at seeing their living Lord. And John then goes on to record two more appearances. He appears to the disciples again a week later, starting there in chapter 20, verse 26, and again to another group, a select group of disciples in chapter 21. Now, these Appearances that are recorded for us here are, are meant to be more than just a wow, that's pretty interesting sort of ending to John's Gospel. I mean, they're pretty astounding. Wow, the, the hero of the story dies and comes back alive. You think, wow, pretty good ending. That's great. No, these appearances that are recorded here are much more significant than just a great ending to John's Gospel account. These are absolutely <coughs> vital to your life as a Christian these particular appearances, the record of them. They're vital to your Christian faith because we believe that Jesus died and rose again based on what we read here. The chances are you haven't seen Jesus face to face. You haven't actually experienced him with your senses in that way. Why do you think Jesus rose from the dead? It's because of these accounts that you believe that. Because of these eyewitness accounts. You trust the eyewitnesses here. And may I say, if these events did not happen, then you really would be a fool to be a Christian. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain. Think about how many public meetings the EU has held over the last 76 years. Every single one of them are complete and utter waste of everybody's time if these events did not happen, if Christ was not raised. Our proclamation has been in vain if he did not rise. And Paul goes on there in 1 Corinthians 15, and your faith has been in vain. It has been a complete waste of your time, if you're a Christian person, being a Christian, if Jesus did not rise from the dead. That's where I think Marcus Borg has got it wrong. You find Jesus' skeletal remains, then you'd be a fool to be a Christian. Because he's not been raised. Your faith is futile. Indeed, as Paul says elsewhere, you're still even in your sins. Jesus' resurrection is absolutely vital to the Christian faith. And so these accounts of Jesus' resurrection appearances are vital to the truth of Christianity. But can you believe them? Can you believe these accounts? If so much is resting on whether they actually happened or not? That's a really good question. And that's where we come to the third of Jesus' appearances, where he appears to Thomas. Because here we meet the sceptic, The third point here, the sceptic. Thomas was one of Jesus' 12 chosen disciples. He'd been with Jesus through his entire public ministry. I mean, this guy had seen everything that Jesus had done. He'd, He'd heard everything that Jesus had to say. But for some reason, which we're not reported why, but for some reason, Thomas wasn't there that first Easter Sunday evening when Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples. Just Thomas wasn't there. I don't know, held up at a barbie. I don't know what what he was doing, but he wasn't there. So what happened? Well, let's pick it up there at verse 24. Chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see... The mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side. I will not believe. They say Jesus is alive. We've seen him, and remember, we've just read that Jesus showed the disciples, you know, his hands and his side. We saw it all, and yet Thomas says, if I do not see the in his hands the mark of the nails, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and put my hand in his side. I will certainly not believe. It is that strident. It is that strong. It is that sceptical. He is the archetype empiricist. The only things Thomas will trust are his own senses. Your word, my great mates, fellow disciples, your word is not enough. I will only trust my own senses, what I can see and touch. He won't accept the word of the eyewitnesses. Now Thomas is not alone in his scepticism. I can remember teaching scripture at a high school in Sydney to a year 11 class and I gave them all out sheets of paper and on the sheet of paper it said, If I could ask God some questions, I would ask him... Dot dot dot, And they were to fill in the questions that they had, that they'd like to ask God. And one girl, I'll call her Diane, she wrote down, Why don't you show yourself and prove your existence... That's Thomas's position precisely, isn't it? Show yourself and prove to me that it's real. Thomas is not alone in his scepticism. You may have heard of David Hume, who's a famous 18th century English philosopher, who likewise maintained that all of our knowledge ultimately comes from our senses. And so he said, rather facetiously once, it would take a miracle to believe in miracles. That is, you hear of some miracle that happens out there, some one-off astounding event, you would be a fool to believe that because you should only believe what you receive from your senses, what you see and hear and can touch and can taste. You hear some report of a miracle, you would, it would be irrational to believe such a report because we know that those things don't happen. Miracles don't happen. You can't prove some sort of one-off occurrence like that. And so therefore he says... It would take some sort of miracle to believe in miracles. So for him it makes no sense to believe in a a miracle like Jesus' resurrection since all your experience tells you that dead people don't come back to life after three days. So David Hume, great philosopher, I think would give a a big tick to Thomas for his healthy scepticism. Unfortunately for Thomas and for Diane and for David Hume, such scepticism when it comes to Jesus' resurrection is entirely misplaced let's pick up the account again there at verse 26 a week later his disciples were again in the house and this time Thomas was with them although the doors were shut Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you then he said to Thomas put your finger here and see my hands reach out your hand and put it in my side do not doubt but believe Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas had drawn his line in the sand, right? Unless I see and put and put, I will certainly not believe. And Jesus sees the line in the sand and just steps straight over it. Okay, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hand. Reach out your hand here. Put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Jesus calls Thomas's bluff. And the impression we get, just from the way John records it, is that Thomas didn't need to put his hand anywhere. He just Jesus' presence in the room, just seeing it with his eyes, was plenty. But Thomas's scepticism was unfounded. And this is the key point. He should have believed the testimony of the eyewitnesses. I think that's why John has included this story right at this point. Because we have the eyewitnesses' account. We have seen the Lord, Thomas says, I don't buy that let him appear to me and Jesus did he should have believed the eyewitnesses and John's written that there for you and for me so that we can know we can trust these eyewitnesses Uh, I wonder why people are so sceptical about the resurrection of Jesus so sceptical about the tenets of the Christian faith I've come across a truly bizarre explanation of people's scepticism this is fully weird but I'm going to share it with you, right? Uh, It's a quote from Aldous Huxley who was a British novelist who died in uh, 1963. Uh, This is what he writes. What is the greatest enemy of Christianity today, he said. And this was his answer. Frozen meat. (laughs) That's right, you heard right. Frozen meat. He goes on. In the past... Only members of the upper classes were thoroughly sceptical and despairingly negative. Why? Among other reasons, because they were the only people who could afford to eat too much meat. Now there's cheap Canterbury lamb and Argentine chilled beef. Even the poor can afford to poison themselves into complete scepticism and despair. He's saying it's meat that's poisoning people's minds and making them sceptical and now everyone can afford to eat too much meat so they're all getting sceptical and that's why the greatest enemy to Christianity today is your butcher feeding all these people meat okay I told you it was bizarre Um, you might be surprised to know that Jesus himself actually has a different explanation of why people are sceptical his explanation, you might remember, was back in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. You can look it up again later. The reason he gives in John chapter 3, 19 to 20, is that people refuse to believe in him because they know that if they do come to him, then they're going to be their life of opposition to God is going to be exposed. To come to Jesus and acknowledge him to be the one from God means acknowledging that actually my life doesn't match up to his teaching that my life has been in opposition to god and you know what that's too confronting people don't want that and so they do not accept jesus now to be fair the first time you ever hear that wow jesus of nazareth christians say he came back from the dead after three days you might be understandably a little bit skeptical initially But once we start turning to the actual eyewitness accounts once we read about the skepticism, the unfounded skepticism of Thomas and actually read the eyewitness accounts, the question is will that initial skepticism move to belief or will that skepticism harden itself into stubbornness? I refuse to believe it. I will not accept it because it just too challenging, too demanding. It's asking too much of me and my life to hand that all over to this Jesus. I refuse to accept it. Well, will we believe the eyewitnesses? Will we listen to Jesus' word there to Thomas? Don't doubt but believe. And you should bear in mind that Jesus goes on then to make a promise in verse 29 that with that belief comes great blessing. He says there, Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have come to believe. Friends, that's, Jesus is talking about you there, if you're a Christian person. Right there in that verse. He's talking about you who haven't seen him face to face, but have come to believe. And he says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Because you haven't seen yet you've come to believe. Well, we've talked a lot about Jesus' resurrection, that it happened Let's turn briefly to why it matters. First of all, Jesus' resurrection matters because it is the sign of Jesus' identity. What's the real significance of Jesus being alive today? I mean, lots of weird stuff happens in the world. I mean, the Wiggles are Australia's highest paid performance. You know, that's that's pretty weird. And they wear skivvies, multicoloured, and one of them's in his 50s. How do you get... weird stuff happens in the world. This guy, Jesus, came out of the grave after three days, dead, now alive. I mean, weird stuff happens. But does it really matter? Is it really significant? Well, John says, yes, it is of the utmost significance that Jesus is alive. And the hint there, again, is in verse 9 of chapter 20. Let's go back to that. Notice what he says. For as yet the disciples did not understand the scripture... That he must rise from the dead. You see, Jesus' resurrection is tied completely to his identity. One of the things that had been prophesied about the Christ, the great King chosen of God who was to come into the world, is that God would not leave this Christ, this King, dead in the grave. God would raise this Christ King back to life again on the third day out of the grave. Now, John says that that was prophesied in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. It's not exactly clear which scripture he has in mind. It could be Psalm 16 verses 8 to 10. Or maybe he's talking about the combined witness of the scripture, the Old Testament scripture. It's not entirely clear. But the point that John makes here is that the resurrection of this Christ was always God's plan. So it's like the, the, the pattern has been set forth. The mold is there the Christ will be rejected, suffer, die and rise. So when you see Jesus rise from the dead, that confirms he's the one who fits into this Christ mould. It is the sign that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus had repeated um, throughout that this would be the great sign of his identity. Go all the way back to John chapter 2. And you can find there when they challenged Jesus about, you know, show us some sign to show us your authority by which you do these things. The sign that Jesus had given them, he'd said, destroy this body, talking about himself, destroy this, sorry, this temple, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it again. That is right from the beginning of his ministry, he knew that his resurrection would be the sign that he was the Christ. The king, right from the beginning. And he'd repeated it throughout. So, for instance, in John chapter 10, in the Good Shepherd passage, Jesus says, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. He knows that the, the goal is actually his resurrection. Or in John chapter 11, Jesus proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. Or in John 16, a little while you won't see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. All the way through, he's known that this was going to happen and this would be the, the ultimate, the, the principal sign of his identity as the Christ. If you like, it's like those empty grave clothes that John saw. It's like those are the calling card of the Christ. That's the sign that Christ has been here because he's thrown off his grave clothes. He's alive again and that means Jesus is the guy. Now you've seen this idea lots of times in movies. You're going, okay, thinking, can't remember watching a movie where a guy came back to life after three days dead in the grave. What I, know, what I mean is that this idea that suddenly someone does something and their true identity is revealed. You know, So um, can you think of a movie, a bit of interaction here, can you think of a movie where sort of the plot drives along, key figure... And suddenly, at the end, something happens, and everybody suddenly knows who it is. Scooby Doo. <laughs> Any other suggestions? Sword in the, the Stone. There's heaps. It's a really common one. Come on, there must. Be. Sorry, what was that? Da Vinci Code. Co. Mission Impossible. Yes, Mission Impossible. Yeah. The Matrix with Neo. Anything else? The Lion, the Lion King. <laughs> That's true, actually, yeah. That's Wow, yeah. Um, it, it's it's a, very com- it goes, it's a very common plot line. It runs everywhere from, like, the heights of, mu- of you know, great movies like Blade Runner, the director's cut. You know, it's, it's in that. All the way through to, let's say, the other end of the spectrum, like You've Got Mail. You know, that sort of really so- super-soppy sort of romantic comedy movie with Tom Hanks and somebody. Anyway, you know, that, like... <laughs> It's a very common plot line that suddenly the chief person does something and everyone goes, oh wow, that's who you are. Well, here it is in real life. Jesus rises from the dead and that confirms his identity, that he is the Christ, the great one come of God. And John wants you to believe that fact. His whole project has been writing this gospel is to convince you of that fact that Jesus really is this Christ, this King. And now that's where we come to. John chapter 20 verse 30 and 31. Right after the account of Thomas and his misplaced scepticism. John writes there in verse 30 and 31. These are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. And that through believing you may have life in his name. John wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Not as a sort of an intellectual fact. Just another fact to remember and churn out in your exams. Not like, yes, Mount Everest is the highest mountain on the planet, Jupiter, the biggest planet in the solar system. Not a fact like that. He wants you to believe this fact like the way that you believe that sticking a fork into a PowerPoint is a bad idea. You believe that's a bad idea, don't you? Or the way you believe that parachutes are really useful when skydiving. Because if you don't believe those facts, or when you do believe them, you act on them. If you see somebody with a fork about to stick them, you say, no, please don't do that. Or you don't go, well, I'm going to go skydiving today. Maybe, maybe I'll just go without a parachute. Just, you know, because they're heavy and stuff. Like, no, if you believe it, you live it. John, writing here. God, writing here through John, wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. What will that believing look like? It'll it'll look like submitting to him. It'll look like taking on board that this is Jesus' identity and trusting him as your king, following him, obeying him. Well, finally, we come to the last point. Jesus' resurrection matters because it's the foundation for Christian new life. Look at what Jesus says to Mary there when he meets Mary outside his now empty tomb. Verse 17. Jesus said to her Don't hold on to me Mary because I have not yet ascended to the Father but go to my brothers and say to them I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Now it would be very easy to skip over this point here but this is very significant that right at this point after his death and resurrection Jesus now is calling his disciples not my disciples, not my followers, not even my friends he's calling them my brothers. And to ram home that this is significant, he says, tell them that I'm I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. There's a big theme that tracks all the way through John's Gospel, right from the beginning of chapter 1, about that through believing in Jesus, you can become children of God. You can become part of God's family. That you can become a brother of the Lord Jesus. That you can have His Father as your Father. And that whole theme comes to a climax right here after Jesus' death and resurrection suddenly now the gates to God's family are open you too can join God's great family through believing in this one Jesus' resurrection is the foundation for the Christian new life and this new life involves many things it involves being forgiven for your sins being washed by water and the spirit, new birth from God and one particular thing it means is that Jesus' resurrection will become your resurrection if you believe in him. That you will experience the same sort of resurrection that your brother Jesus has experienced from God. And that uh, has been a, a promise, a gift of Jesus all the way through this gospel. Lots of times he said things like John 14, he said, Because I will live, you also will live, to his disciples or elsewhere he said things like this is the will of my father that all who see the son and believe in him may have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day or again John 11 I'm the resurrection and the life those who believe in me even though they die will live Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of his offer to his brothers and sisters in Christ of resurrection as well I'm going to finish uh, just by sharing with you some rather sobering statistics. In this last week, there's been a, quite a bit of outcry, I don't know if you've followed it in the media, about the four teenage guys, who, 16, 17-year-olds, who died in that car crash up near Byron Bay. There's been a lot of discussion about that in the media, and we're often shocked by tragic deaths. But I wonder if you're really aware of just how suffocating is death's hold on all of us. Do you know that today, like this today, 123 people will die in New South Wales? 358 people will die today in Australia. 358 people today. And then tomorrow, another 358 people. And the next day, Another 358 people. And every day, another 358 people in this country will die. Until, eventually, our numbers come up. One day you will be part of that statistic. Save the Lord Jesus' return sooner. Death has a terrifyingly suffocating grip around all of us. And it is unrelenting. Except for one man, except in this one man, there is a glimmer of hope, except it's not a glimmer, but the whole suffocating hold of death is thrown off on this one man, Jesus of Nazareth. That is what God holds out for all of humanity as a gift, a sure hope of resurrection from the grave. I started out today with a question: where would you go to look for Jesus? i end with this other question. In 100,000 years, where could I go looking for you? Where will I find you in 100,000 years? Will I find you resurrected like your brother Jesus because you put your faith in him now? Because that's the great hope, that's the great comfort, that's the great message that God holds out to all of us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good things that you have so graciously given us, especially for your Son, the Lord Jesus, for his death and resurrection, for the hope of eternal life. We pray, Father, that you might empower us all to put our faith and trust in him and live for him as his followers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (coughs)